Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Greenlight Guru is committed to improving the quality of life, and now we're ready to improve the quality of education and training in the medical device industry. Greenlight Guru Academy is a comprehensive training resource for anyone looking to learn industry best practices with actionable training from industry experts. You'll get on-demand courses that allow you to move at your own pace on topics related to quality and regulatory, product development, design controls, risk management, doc control. Honestly, it's too many to fit into a short ad. So if you're ready to level up your medical device education, visit greenlight.guru forward slash academy today. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is the founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And joining me today is President of Vascular Sciences, Mike Drews. Mike, welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. Absolutely. So you and I have talked about EUA or emergency use authorization maybe at least a time or two in the past on the Global Medical Device Podcast. And we'll dive into that here in a moment. But obviously, the the EUA topic, when we spoke about that before, was largely related or driven by COVID-19 and and those sorts of things. But maybe I'd like to dive into this a little bit more because I think we're at a point where, you know, obviously the pandemic, it seems to be coming to an end. And a lot of these products that went through the EUA pathway, you know, there's probably some things that, that those companies need to be doing if they want to keep those products on the market and that sort of thing. So we might dive into some of that. But Maybe a great place to start really is remind folks, give them a brief recap of what EUA is and when to use it and those sorts of things. Well, great question, John. And as always, thanks for the opportunity to have this discussion with you and your audience about uh, a very important and still very timely topic. And by the way, John, uh, I would make a a little stronger uh, comment of what you just said. We just haven't talked about EUAs from time to time in the past. We've talked about EUAs in significant detail (laughs) in the past. And I'm also very proud to to say that you and I were among the very first people in this industry to be talking about it. As a matter of fact, John, you may remember we did our first podcast on the EUA and I did my first in-depth webinar on the EUA for Greenlight Guru in very early 2020 at the beginning of, of, of the pandemic long before most other people in this industry, including the FDA, were were talking about this. And the only reason why I point that out, John, not to be sort of self-serving here, but I'm proud of the fact that many of the topics that we talk about are very much ahead of the rest of of the herd. You know, a lot of people, when they give a webinar, it's basically, you know, after somebody else has already talked about this 10 or 20 or 100 times. Right. So, Anyway, that said, more importantly, a quick recap of the emergency use authorization for those in our audience that are not familiar with it or maybe those that haven't heard some of our previous discussions. First and foremost, it's an alternative pathway to market. It's not in lieu of a 510K or a de novo or a PMA instead of, maybe I, I think I said that. It's an opportunity for a company to get a device onto the market in an accelerated fashion, and I put that word accelerated in air quotes. I'll talk more about that in a moment. That's the theory. And one of the requirements of the EUA, 
on the labeling side is we must make a COVID-specific label claim. In other words, if you have a diagnostic device, an IVD, an in vitro diagnostic that can be used for, say, many different diseases, if you want an EUA on it, you have to make a COVID-specific claim. If you have a ventilator or something like that that might already be on the market for many different things, if you want an EUA on it, you need to make a COVID-specific claim that the ventilator should be used for people specifically with COVID or symptoms of COVID or what have you. So one of the regulatory requirements is on the labeling side. A couple of other things just to, to note that I think are important for people to understand about the EUA, John, is in spite of what some of the politicians on the TV and what some of the folks at FDA will have people believe, there is definitely a lower regulatory burden for devices coming yes. onto the market under the EUA as opposed to any other pathway to market. And to demonstrate that, there's no better way to demonstrate that, John, than to take FDA's words and throw it right back in their face. <laughs> One of the statements that you see in a typical EUA authorization letter, and by the way, John, an EUA, as the name implies, it's an authorization. It's not a clearance or approval. But in the authorization letter, it says, and this is a direct quote, the device, when labeled consistently with the labeling authorized by the FDA, is authorized to be distributed under this EUA. And this is the important part, John. Quote, despite the fact that it does not meet requirements otherwise required by applicable federal law. Read that last part again. Despite the fact that it does not meet requirements otherwise required by applicable federal law. And a similar sentence in typical EUA letters is, based on the totality of the scientific evidence available to FDA, direct quote, that it is the device is reasonably reasonable to believe that the device may be effective for emergency use in, in treating patients with whatever disease, in this particular case, COVID. It is reasonable to believe that the device may be effective for emergency use for treating patients with COVID. And the reason why I bring that up, John, is because I think it's deceptive or yes. possibly even flat out lying when people say or people get onto this, the TV and say when it comes to medical devices or even vaccines, that these products are held to the same standard, that they are just as safe and effective as other products. When that is, in my opinion, John, a factually incorrect statement. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I've heard similar things. I'm sure folks listening have heard these sorts of things. But, you know, you know as Mike has shared, and if you dive in deeper to the details, or if you're a company that actually went through and, and got an EUA for your product, it is a much, much simpler process than a more traditional 510k or de novo or, or pma for that matter so much quick you know I, I like the the accelerated in quotes but not just the accelerated the regulatory expectations are significantly relaxed as well right so yeah and, know, and and i don't want our i don't want our uh, audience to miss my message john i'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing because absolutely. in a healthcare emergency in a pandemic taking certain, shall we say, shortcuts might be justified. But to illustrate perfectly, John, from my experience, I have a couple of customers who got EUAs on existing devices, and then they've gone back to the FDA for a 510K or a de novo right. to keep the device on the market. And they are now totally overwhelmed, totally blown away at the additional work right. that they have to do. And they basically say to me, Mike, 
we already got this through the FDA as an EUA. <laughs> Why do we have to jump through a whole bunch of additional hoops for a 510K or a de novo? And I said, well, <laughs> this is, you know, read FDA's verbiage. Yeah. Uh, and just a couple of other things to, to close the, the review discussion, John. As I mentioned a moment ago, the EUA is a authorization, but it's a temporary authorization. Again, in the EUA letter, it says this EUA will cease to be effective when the HHS, Health and Human Services, declares that the circumstances exist to justify the EUA is terminated. And that's a political decision. Yeah. And you may remember, John, back in January of this year, January of 2020, you and I did an yeah. EUA update. This is an EUA update update that we're doing yeah. today. But the previous EUA update was titled uh, Tips for Being Prepared Post-EUA. And right. at that time, FDA announced they're probably going to be giving companies about six months to to submit a 510K or de novo or a PMA if they want to plan to continue to have that EUA device on the market. So once again, John, you and I have been ahead of the curve on this yeah. in multiple steps along the way. And I, and I hope folks uh, listened to that uh, when we recorded that back in January and took action. I don't believe that HHS has terminated the EUA as of yet, correct? They, they have not terminated. In fact, they are still taking EUA submissions, although right. admittedly, John, they have really scaled back on which right. submissions they are taking. For example, in many areas, FDA believes, whether I agree with them or not is a different story, but FDA believes that we already have enough of these kinds of devices on the market. Right. So they are actually now not accepting new EUAs in certain areas, but you can still do a 510K or de novo or a PMA on anything you want. And as we're going to talk about it towards the end of today's discussion, John, in other areas beyond COVID, the EUA program is actually expanding. Yeah. So within COVID, the EUA program is sort of shrinking a little bit, but beyond COVID, it's actually getting bigger. And we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah. I, you know, I know EUA is, wasn't new or invented or created as a reaction uh, to COVID. It, it was something that has, has been around for quite some time. Granted, not, not used probably uh, all that often or definitely not quite to the extent as we saw with COVID, but I know you've been, you know, kind of on the front lines. You mentioned, you know, at least uh, one company that you've been working with on EUA. I'm sure you've worked with plenty of others. But what do you think we have learned uh, about the the COVID experience so far? I, I guess specifically with respect to EUA. Yeah, great question, John. I think we've learned a lot. And one of the uh, resources that I was just reviewing recently. Uh, and we'll put this up on the website with the podcast for people to look at. This was about a, a 50 page report that was just issued last month, September yeah. of 2022, from the Office of the Inspector General, part of the Health and Human Services Department. So sort of a parallel, a sister to the FDA. And the title of this report was FDA repeatedly adapted emergency use authorization policies to address the need for COVID-19 testing. And interestingly enough, John, there was very little press about this report when it came out. I don't know why, because quite yeah. frankly, I think some of the findings in this report, well, they were not surprising to me. 
they're, they're they might be surprising to some of us in this audience. So if it's okay with you, John, I'd like to just kind of yeah, quickly sure. highlight some of the what I thought were the more poignant takeaways yeah, from that yeah. report, yeah. and then we can talk about them. And I got to preface this by saying that none of this was a surprise to me, John. Most of the problems that they talked about were not only preventable but predictable. And it reminds me so many times when companies come to me, they are they're having a problem with the FDA and they, they're in a hole and they want me to help them get out of the hole. And I say to them, I'm happy to help you get out of this hole, but it would have been so much faster and easier and cheaper if you would have brought me in six months ago or a year ago to prevent you from getting in this hole to begin with. Because yeah. regrettably, John, one of the things that I've learned in playing this game now for about 30 years is most uh, virtually all problems that I see companies get into, not only are they preventable, but they're predictable. Mm -hmm. So with that said, here's some statistics for you. So at the beginning of COVID, FDA reviewed a record number of EUA requests, but many of these requests, they were of very poor quality. So let me just share with you some statistics, putting things into perspective. On average, before COVID, FDA typically would review about 100 in vitro diagnostic devices or IVDs in a typical year, about 100. During the beginning of COVID, so we're talking, you know, the first couple months of 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic, FDA received on average more than 100 EUA requests per month, per month, as opposed to 100 per year before that, on top of what they were already reviewing already. Right. And a year into COVID. So now we're fast forwarding into the beginning of right. 2020, 2021. FDA was still averaging more than 100 EUA requests per month wow. for IVDs alone. Comparison to the previous pandemic, you may remember, John, back in 2009, the H1N1 influenza pandemic, which was the last pandemic prior to COVID, ish, FDA issued in total. 17 emergency use authorizations (laughs) in the entire year. In comparison to the first year of COVID alone, FDA issued 320 EUAs specifically for COVID indications. And as a result, John, you may remember one of the things we we talked about, certain branches within FDA, specifically the IVD branch and and the respiratory branch, they were so slammed that for over a year, I think almost a year and a half, they completely stopped accepting requests for pre-submissions, not for COVID products, but for all products across the board. And several of my customers were affected by this. So clearly FDA has been inundated in terms of, you know, the workload. That's all publicly available information, John. The statistics that I just shared with you are from this report from just last month. But what is not publicly available, this is my Mike Drew's commentary on top of this, is that this reallocation of resources within FDA has led, and I have to be a little careful what I say here in a in a in a public podcast, has led to Mm, some folks at FDA being asked to review submissions that clearly they are not qualified to review. And I have had multiple senior folks at FDA tell me this personally. Of course, they would never say that publicly. But because they've just been totally slammed, they've got people reviewing submissions that, you know, quite frankly, they're not qualified to to review. Right. Wow. That's some statistics for you. I want to go on, John, and talk about the, the bigger concern to me is that so many of these submissions were of, in FDA's words, poor quality. But before we go on to that, John, any comments about the, the statistics that I just shared? 
Well, I mean, comment you, you made a little bit ago, FDA is, is still uh, accepting new EUA applications. Granted, it's it's significantly less, but, and the other comment that you shared about, basically FDA was resource constrained so much so that they're pulling in people from here and there or what have you to help do reviews. Do you still feel as though the FDA resources are strained? I mean, is for example, is IVD branch or division, are they st- have they stopped pre-subs yet even today or have they resumed receiving pre-subs? Do we see life back to normal from an FDA review perspective? Well, what I would say, John, is life is going back to normal. I yeah. would not say that we're completely back to normal, but go going back to normal. And once again, John, I don't like to talk as so many people do in just generalities and platitudes. I like to try to provide specific examples, you know, direct evidence of what I'm talking about here. And again, I have to be very, very careful what I say, but I can tell you that recently I did a pre-sub with the FDA for a in vitro diagnostic. It was not for COVID, but it was a different type of IVD. FDA admitted in the pre-sub that they made a wrong decision on a previous submission of ours that happened during COVID, quite frankly, because they were resource constrained. Yeah. In other words, basically, they said, we didn't have the proper time to evaluate this. Therefore, we made the wrong decision. And this is what this was supposed to be a binding decision, John. But, you know, I was a little bit miffed. On one hand, I said, well, I appreciate you admitting not publicly, but admitting privately to the company that you made the wrong decision. But with all due respect, what is your definition of binding meat? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Because they are not sticking with this binding decision. So again, it is still having an impact on many, many levels. So we're getting back to normal, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah. All right. Anything else that, that you think is important to point out of things that we've learned from the COVID experience? Yeah. So let me go on. On. This is this is something that I think is particularly problematic to me, the poor quality of these submissions. Yeah. So here's a direct quote from an FDA reviewer who said a lot of submissions, he or she is referring to EUA submissions, that FDA received were of, quote, very poor quality, very poor quality. That is not my words, that this FDA reviewers and all that ate up our time. This is another reason why FDA was so slammed because not only did they get a ton of EUAs, but let's be honest, a lot of them were just total crap. And I've seen some of them and they are, I'm sorry if this sounds harsh to some people, John, but they were total crap. Examples of what low quality EUA submissions means includes things like they were missing necessary data contained or contained data that failed to determine if the test met authorized standards. As a matter of fact, FDA estimates that 80% of submissions, 80% of EUA submissions needed revisions, needed additional information. That means that only 20% of them were successful first time through through the gate. And you and I have talked about statistics for the 510K and the PMA and the de novo. The EUA statistics are even worse than yeah. all of those others. So now the, the, the question is why? Well, this is interesting. And it's also talked about in the report, which is no surprise to me. They say that it's the smaller manufacturers and laboratories who have not interacted with the regulatory environment, i.e. the FDA, much before who struggle most in meeting this criteria. 
Here's another interesting statistic for you, John. Only 13% of companies who had requested an EUA for a non-COVID-related product in the past. In other words, only 13% of companies that got that requested an EUA for COVID, only 13% of them did an EUA for something else prior to COVID, which means that if I don't embarrass myself as a PhD in engineering general with my arithmetic, 87% of companies <laughs> that pursued an EUA for COVID never did an EUA before. That's yeah. statistic number one. Statistic number two, only about 28% of them had gone through any FDA approval or clearance process at all, which means that over 30%, uh, sorry, over uh, 70% of companies never went through any 510K, any wow. de novo, any PMA. So this, this is the first time. This, this is all... the first time. Oh, wow. This is the first time you do brain surgery and you're cutting right into the guy's brain, you know, no practice, no training, no nothing. And so as a result, experience helps. The experienced developers, the ones that had products on the market already and the ones that had do, done EUAs before, 91% of those developers who had previous experience with the FDA, either with an EUA or at least something else, went through the process successfully, 91%. Yeah, wow. That's good to hear. Uh, compared to 40% that had no, no experience, 40% went through the process without any major problems. Mm. In fact, and then if you want to chime in on any of this last lack of experience, John, feel free. One FDA mm. reviewer said that with less experience, they had no idea how things should be done and required a significantly higher level of support. In other words, they relied on FDA to help them through mm -hmm. this process. And as a regulatory consultant, John, and again, it might sound harsh to some people, that is not, underline not, FDA's job to do. Right. It is not FDA's job, in spite of what the politicians want, well, have to say, it is not FDA's job to help the company get their product onto the market. That's the company's responsibility. Right. The FDA's job is to make sure that it's safe and effective, that it demonstrates the, the supports the label claims and so on. It's kind of, in my opinion, John, it's kind of like, you know, in, you, in, a, in a criminal trial, you know, it's the, the where you have a prosecution and defense. Are you going to expect the prosecuting attorney to give suggestions to the defense <laughs> attorney on how to get their client off? Right. They're probably not going to do that. That's not no. their job. Right. right. So bottom line, John, if you have experience doing these things, you're going to be more successful. If you don't have experience doing these things, that's not a problem. You can't be an expert in everything, but get somebody to help you who is. Exactly. exactly. And, I, and I think, you know, I thank you for sharing some of those statistics because I, well, I had a lot of experience in talking with companies who were uh, not in the medical device industry prior to who uh you know have products or services or what have you that that they felt would lend themselves well to help during the the pandemic and you know some examples there were a lot of automotive companies that that got into the mix and and other you know non-medical device manufacturing companies that were involved in various eua products and submissions and, and what have you so i think the statistics that you just shared that 28 percent of companies going through this for the first time includes those companies who might not have been medical device companies before this uh, EUA process as well. Correct. And John, that reminds me of one of the other 
differences in an EUA compared to other things that I didn't mention before, and I know that this is near and dear to your heart, so feel free to chime in, is the lower quality requirements for EUA devices as opposed to right. non-EUA devices. And as perhaps some in our audience may remember from my webinar in the very early days of the pandemic in I think March or April of 2020, when I did that webinar on the EUA and we, I took a deep dive into the EUA. And one of the examples that I used was ventilators. Yeah. And one of the questions that I raised at the time, it was a rhetorical question, but today it's a very, it's a very apropos question. What's better to have a bunch of ventilators on the market sooner or to have ones on the market that don't work? And that's exactly what's happened. And that's a result of the lower quality requirements. And it's also a result of, let's be honest, people doing things, you know, they might have the best of intentions. But if you have a car company who now all of a sudden gets into the ventilator business, right. obviously there's going to be some similar skills, no question about it, but there's going to be some important differences. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's kind of a, a good, I think, synopsis of EUA in the the COVID era, so to speak. I mean, I, I don't see EUA going away, but are, are there things on the horizon or things that are happening in this world that, that could have an impact on future EUA, I don't want to say opportunities, but situations or circumstances? I, I, I'm fumbling with words a little bit, but what's new in the world of EUAs beyond COVID? Yeah. Great question, John. So just to recap, thus far, I gave some what I think are some of the important differences between the EUA versus some of the other pathway to market options. And then we did sort of a uh, using that inspector general report, a critical analysis of our COVID EUA experience thus far and some of the lessons to be learned, including the poor quality of the submissions and so on. Now, let's take a look at the future, because that's most important to to the companies that I work with is where are we going? Well, as you may remember, John, back in early 2020, that's when Health and Human Services first authorized the EUA for COVID. And now two and a half years into that process, we're still uh, we're still doing it. The question is, where are we going from from here? Well, COVID still remains at the top of the news a lot. But there's another thing that's been in the news a little bit recently, John, something called mon monkeypox. Have you heard of that? Year, year, right. year. I was on mute. I had background noise, but yes, I've heard of it. So what's going on with monkeypox in the UA? Is, is this a thing now? Yeah, well, so this is starting to be a thing, John. A couple of things to, to keep in mind here. First of all, in August of this year, just two months before doing our recording today, in August, HHS authorized, well, first they determined that monkeypox is now a healthcare emergency, okay. similar to COVID. Not quite as much of an emergency here in the United States, but certainly an emergency in other places in the world. And so as a result, as of August and September of this year, again, just one or two months before where we're, when we're talking right now, HHS authorized companies to get an EUA for a monkeypox product. It could be a monkeypox device like a diagnostic or mm -hmm. a monkeypox vaccine. And in point of fact, John, the FDA issued an a monkeypox EUA template in September of last year for monkeypox EUAs. I would say, John, that it, the monkeypox EUA template is substantially equivalent, pun right. intended, to the COVID EUA right. templates that FDA has put out. And just 
Last month, uh, just about uh, a month ago today, FDA issued the first monkeypox EUA for a company with a real-time PCR polymerase chain reaction in vitro diagnostic. So we now have one successful EUA for a non-COVID, in this case, a monkeypox diagnostic. The question is, is that going to be a trend that continues? Are we going to see more and more monkeypox-related EUA submissions? Well, first of all, John, there's got to be a compelling business reason for companies to want to do this. And at the moment, I don't see a real strong, compelling business reason for several reasons, not the least of which is, as I said a moment ago, monkeypox, at least right now, doesn't seem to be as much of a problem here in the U.S. as it is in elsewhere. And actually, John, there was a report that came out just three or four days ago from the CDC. And again, we can provide a reference to this report as part of the uh, as part of the resources. But the title of the CDC report is "Monkeypox Eradication Unlikely in the U.S. as Virus Could Spread Indefinitely." But here's the important part that's not in the title. CDC says that monkeypox could continue to spread indefinitely, but at a very low level in the United yeah. States. In other words, not to the same extent as COVID. CDC says that monkeypox is unlikely to be eliminated from the U.S. in the near future, and outbreaks are slowing as availability of vaccines have increased and people have become more aware of how to avoid infections similar to, to COVID. So bottom line, John, is there a need for monkeypox products and will we see more monkeypox related EUAs? I would say probably a few but not nearly to the extent that we've seen with with COVID. So here's my advice for question for companies uh, in this area, John, and then feel free to chime in here. If you have a diagnostic device, and, and what I'm talking about here is primarily for diagnostics, not for ventilators, not for personal protective equipment, not for imaging, you know, but but specifically for diagnostics. If you have a diagnostic that you can modify to be used, uh, that, that maybe you have an EUA for COVID and you can modify it to be used for monkeypox. Maybe it's an immunobased diagnostic where you take the antibody for COVID out and you swap it with an antibody for monkeypox. Or if it's a molecular diagnostic, PCR, polymerase chain reaction, and you take a gene probe for COVID out of it and you replace it with a gene probe for monkeypox. Then to me, it's a no-brainer. I would definitely encourage the company to submit an EUA for that, it's going to be a pretty easy thing for them to do if they think that they can you know, make a contribution in the monkeypox area. But for most other companies, John, unless something changes drastically, and again, we're talking about predicting the future here, so nobody knows 100% certain, I don't see a real strong, compelling uh, reason, certainly not a business reason, for a lot of companies to get into the space for monkeypox. But most importantly to me, John, and this will be the, the last point in this area. And then if you want to uh, to chime in, please feel free. Uh, prior to COVID, pretty much nobody in the medical device industry knew about the EUA or even heard of the EUA prior to COVID. Yeah, there were a few diagnostics for H1N1 and for a few things before that. But very much when I used to teach medical school, John, I was fond of the average. When you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. When you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. So the EUA prior to COVID has been very much a zebra, not a horse. Right. With COVID, it has become a horse. 
I think by HHS now uh, acknowledging monkeypox as a healthcare emergency, as a pandemic, and now allowing EUAs to be given for diagnostics. And we had, John, the first EUA for a vaccine for a monkeypox just a month or two ago as well. They've opened that door. So beyond monkeypox, who knows what's going to happen next? Well, so I think now the there's there's an interesting precedent that's being set here. In other words, yes. in the past, there have been very, very few health declared healthcare emergencies with COVID and now monkeypox. Does that mean that we could potentially have more healthcare emergencies declared in the future? Of course, John, time will tell. But if we do, I want our, you and our audience to remember, where did you hear it first? Yeah. Thoughts on any of that, John? Yeah. I mean, as you... It just doesn't feel like monkeypox meets the definition of a healthcare emergency. But I guess that's an ambiguous term that that doesn't have necessarily a black and white criteria defined. Well, it's an interesting question, John. Admittedly, I'm not an expert in healthcare policy and what you're talking right. about. But here are political decisions as much as scientific decisions. And I think it's probably the by, beyond the scope of our particular discussion whether sure. monkeypox meets the definition of a healthcare emergency. But the point for our audience to remember is whether we think it is emergency or not, it has been declared a healthcare emergency. And therefore, for companies that this is applicable for, it now opens up the possibility yeah. for them of doing an EUA for a monkeypox diagnostic or for any other product that you think might be uh, valuable for a patient with monkeypox, including those personal protective equipment and ventilators and and all that other stuff. But the same criteria, the same limitations that apply that we've talked about today, as well as in our past discussions that apply to COVID EUAs in terms of it's a temporary authorization and so on, that all applies to EUAs across the board, including a potential monkeypox. Uh, so yeah. what I would say, my recommendation to, to our audience, John, especially to the regulatory folks in this audience, is you should definitely keep the emergency use authorization on your list of possible plays in your playbook, along right. with the 510K, along with the de novo, along with the PMA, the HD, and all the other litany of possibilities so that you're prepared to consider it if and when the time arises. No, I, I think that's good advice because, you know, obviously, you know, from COVID emergency, healthcare emergency now, you know, monkeypox being uh, defined as, as a healthcare emergency, there's probably going to be something else in the not too distant future. I mean, I, that, that's not a bold prediction by any stretch, but I guess the hope is that as these additional EUAs uh, or, or situations arise and, and the EUA vehicle, if you will, continues to be uh, an, an option, hopefully, fingers crossed, we see an improvement in the quality of those submissions for these these future use cases. So we'll see. Um, I could not agree more, John. Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I would say that that's probably one of the most important takeaways from our discussion Absolutely. is, uh, you know, take these lessons to be learned that I shared from the Office of the Inspector General report, not as criticisms, but rather as lessons to be learned. Yes. My point is here is not to blame, not to bash FDA or companies or anybody else. Instead, try to take this information and prevent these problems from happening again in the future. And I think it goes without saying that a 
if you're going to submit something to the FDA, it's got to be of sufficient quality. This is not true for just the EUA, but this is true for all documents across the board. Yeah. I think, John, as, as you know, and as probably many in our audience know, I work not just as a as a consultant for companies, but I'll work I also work as a as a consultant for the FDA. I do get a chance to see some of the submissions coming into the FDA. Some of them are terrific, very well written, very well explained, very well argued. But some of them, quite frankly, John, are absolutely pieces of crap. I mean, yeah. they are painful to read, right. literally painful, kind of begs the question, John, do they even teach kids in elementary school anymore to to construct a, a complete sentence? I'm not sure about that. I don't know. Even when I. Even when I read, you know, the assignments from some of my graduate students in the Ivy League institution, I say, you know, did you have to go to elementary school first before coming to graduate school? <laughs> <laughs> so, again, none of this is a surprise to me. These are all preventable. These are all predictable. And I've tried to, you know, give some specific examples on on how to try to minimize some of those problems. Yeah, sure. All right. Anything else that, that you think is important on, on this topic of EUA in October of 2022, based on our current knowledge and understanding of where things have been, where they are and where you know they might be going? Anything else that you want to, to bring to discussion? Yeah, I think I think what you just said a moment ago, John, is a, is a great way to paraphrase my intent of having today's discussion. Talk a little bit about where we were, you know, in other words, what the EUA is and how it's to be used and so on, where we are now and some of the lessons to be learned from the pre- past, and most importantly, where we're going in the future. You know, next step is mon- monkeypox, but beyond that, you know, who the heck knows? My intent here was not just simply to rehash what you and I have talked about before with the EUA and what other people have talked about, but to go beyond that. So I think that, um, I think we accomplished that objective. I think that was a, a good discussion. Okay. Maybe, you know, what what do you think is the top takeaway that you want people to, to leave with today? Well, it's going to sound like something that we've talked about in the context of a lot of our discussions, John, and that is don't treat FDA as our elementary school teacher. You know, here's my homework assignment. Will you, you know, mark it up and give it back to me? You know, when you look at some of those statistics coming right out of the investigator's report that, you know, said, you know, 80 percent of these submissions were not complete. They were missing information, in some cases, critical information. That to me means that, quite frankly, and I'm going to be blunt here on purpose, John, many people, and again, I'm stereotyping, I admit that, you know, I'm generalizing, there are exceptions, but many people in this game, in spite of their best of intentions, they don't know what the heck they're doing. And they're expecting FDA to hold their hand and say, well, you've done a pretty good job thus far, but now you need to do X, Y, and G. With all due respect, John, at least in my opinion, and you or perhaps, you know, other people in this field might disagree, that is not FDA's job to do. No, I agree. And and to kind of, you know, my takeaway from our discussion today is is related to, to what you just shared. But, you know, when Mike shared those statistics regarding, you know, sort of the COVID EUA experience, if you will, it's pretty clear based on some of those statistics that that those so many companies and and went into this 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 was their first real meaningful regulatory experience in dealing with FDA and and I think uh, it showed that based on you know the, the quality issues and and the number that were you know sent back with you know flaws and and what have you and incomplete information it just makes sense. You know, if you're going to go down this path and you've never done it before, 
Get a hold use, of somebody who has. You know? <laughs> to use a to use a medical metaphor, John, because as a biomedical engineer working in the medical device industry and used to teach medical school back in the day, I do use a lot of medical metaphor med- sure. medical metaphors. God forbid you need surgery. Imagine you're lying on the gurney about to be wheeled into the OR, and just before they put you under, your surgeon says, "Oh, by the way, John, this is the first time I'm doing the surgery." Yeah, right. Well. If that's the case, I want to see the person standing next to them, the man or the woman who has done this, you know, a hundred or a thousand exactly. times before. Exactly. I have no problem with somebody doing something for the first time. After all, all of us, myself included, you know, we have to do something for the first time, you know, once. Don't if do you're it doing it for yeah. the first time, don't do it by yourself. Yeah. And just one last example, John, and then we can wrap this up because, again, this is a real world example. I had taken a device to the FDA for a COVID indication. It was a COVID diagnostic. But long story short, it was a totally different mechanism of action. It was not an immunodiagnostic test. It was not a molecular diagnostic test. It was something completely different. And as a result, long story short, John, FDA refused to accept it as an EUA. FDA said, you can do this as a de novo. And I said, yeah, fine. We're going to do that, but we want to do it as an F, as an EUA first. And they said no because it's just too different. Well, I said to them, where in the EUA regulation does it say that your mechanism of action has to be substantially equivalent to something that already yeah. exists, does not exist? What they admitted to me privately was that because of some of the statistics that I shared today, that they've been slammed with so many submissions, and most of them being of, in their words, very poor quality. They did not have the resources, shall we say, to apply to this as an EUA, and they would have to do it as a as a de novo. I was miffed. I was absolutely miffed. And I had encouraged the company and the company is looking at, you know, pursuing this, you know, in in legal channels. But the problem is, John, one thing I've learned in, in this process is one side lawyers up, then the other side has to lawyer up. And when lawyers get involved, at the end of the day, nobody wins. Yeah, except, right? for, the, except for the attorneys. Yeah, except for the attorneys. Fair point. Yeah. But this is another, you know, um, sort of a ramification that we're, yeah. that we're finding from this yeah. COVID experience, if you will. And that is that we do have, you know, some in my opinion, very legitimate products that are being held up or in some cases not being allowed to get onto the market at all because of some of the other actors, you know. In, in, <laughs> yeah. You know, what do yeah. they say, John? Every every barrel is going to have a few bad apples. Regrettably, the bad, bad apples are spoiling the brine for, for yeah. some of the other. But anyway, yeah. enough on that. All right. Well, Mike, I appreciate this uh, this dive and this into EUA and you know sort of a Q4 2022 perspective on on where things are currently sit with respect to EUA. So thank you for sharing some of those insights. And folks, I appreciate as always you listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Uh, certainly, if you have questions uh, about EUA, whether you already have products that, that went through that pathway or you're considering pursuing products uh, for that pathway, it's good to ask and reach out to someone who has a lot of experience. And certainly, as I'm sure you've picked up uh, from today, Mike Drews has a ton of experience in this area. So reach out to Mike with Vascular Sciences. Uh, he'll he'll steer you in the way that strategically makes the most sense for, for your company and your products and, and all those sorts of things. So be sure to reach out to him. Again, thank you so much. And until next time, this is John Spear, the founder at Greenlight Guru, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. The best medical device companies don't just follow the rules, they lead with quality. 
At Greenlight Guru, we try to do the same. Our medical device success platform is based on the latest FDA and ISO standards, as well as the best practices of medical device manufacturers who lead the industry with products of the highest quality. If you're ready to bring safer, better medical devices to market faster, contact greenlight.guru today.